All right, we're going to take now some time to open up uh, the scripture together and to teach. And uh, this morning we have the great privilege of hearing from <clears throat> one of our uh, former members here at Midtown, who now is an elder at Soma Downtown, Dante Cook. Uh, Dante and Bree are, uh, yeah, I mean, they've been here since 2013, got to do their wedding uh, several years ago, and now they have a beautiful family, and we're so grateful for uh, them. They uh, left Soma Midtown, were sent out to Soma Downtown, moved to the Near East Side, and they are pretty much like the bishops of the Near East Side now. And so we're really grateful, Dante, for you coming back to, to lead us. If you can weave your way through the forest of uh, AV equipment over here, grateful to have you. Let's welcome Dante as he comes and shares God's word with us. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be here. It's so cool to see so many new faces. I came here and preached. Uh, I was actually at the fairgrounds uh, during COVID. But even since then, there's so many more new faces that I don't recognize. So welcome to be here. Uh, I'm talking today about money and generosity. I know you all have been in a series around simplicity and generosity. And I know Brandon, like a month and a month and a half back, talked about mammon, I think, and you know, God and mammon. So I'm going to do kind of my take on what God is telling us and teaching us about money and generosity, because he has a lot to say. But what is money? Like foundationally, money is a human invented technology that allows us to store economic value across time and space to eventually be used for goods and services. Accounting 101, money is a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. And many things have served as money over time. Stones, feathers, right, precious metals. In prison, they use cigarettes as money, right? Um, There's open source software, there's alcohol, but money is merely a tool that expedites trade. It's a neutral tool that saves us time and energy. But we know that the world is sinful. Romans 8.20 says, but the world is not a neutral place that is sinful, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. We do not live in a neutral world. And across all of these objects that have been used as money across civilization, geographies, different governments, rulers, it's become an instrument of power, an object of worship, and an idol that rivals God. And as we come into today, all of us are starting to realize that money is broken around the world. If you've turned on the news, you'll see something about inflation, some sort of inflation, inflation, deflation, stagflation, hyperinflation. Something is broken about money in the world. In the UK, inflation, the last print was 9.1%, the reported number. In Germany, it's 8.7%. In Turkey, it's 73.5%. In Zimbabwe, there just came out an article two days ago that inflation is at 160%. Money is broken. The median home price in Q1 of this year was $428,000 here in America. We feel the inflation and the impacts of it everywhere and every day, and everything that we purchase. And not to throw gas on the fire, no pun intended, but I was filling up at the, uh, at the, at the gas station the other day, and my daughter, Sky, she's six, she came over, she said, Daddy, the, the thing on the screen says $100. The gas pump just cut off, whether it was for my own health and safety, like sanity, or I just hit my $100 cap of that's how much gas that I could put in. Just shut off. The fuel-efficient Suburban, right, is, is not the best. The 0-3 Suburban, uh, not, the, not the best car to be driving around right now, but that's our family car. So what is happening? What is going on? Really, at the end of the day, let me give you a global synopsis of monetary history. I spent a bunch of time in the market, put in my 10,000 hours, To the extent that a country has a strong military and effective government and the ability to create or control the supply of money, those uh, those countries around the world have tended to be the global superpowers. And so let me go back really quick, just to give you like a money history 101 in the United States. 1907, they had the panic of 1907. There was a run on the banks. And so the economic system pretty much collapsed. It was run by a few major bankers. You've heard of J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilts and some of these people. They controlled all of what people were able to do, borrow, spend, save in America. And when that system collapsed the final time, uh, a bunch of guys went down to this place in Georgia called Jekyll Island. Does anyone ever, does anyone know anything about this? Okay. They went down to this place in Georgia called Jekyll Island, right? This is a real story right, where 12 people created what is called the Federal Reserve. By the way, it is not federal, and it is not a reserve. It is not a bank either. Just funny thing. 
Okay, but all the way up through then, we've had collapse, we've had different calamities, right? World War I, they were able to print money into the system to fund the war in Europe until we said we're coming into the war, and then they issued the first war bond that Americans were able to invest in to support the war. Eventually, Americans didn't fully agree with the war, and so what did they start to do? They started to create taxes, they started to create other financial instruments to keep the currency flowing to fund the wars. 1933, 1929, you all have heard of the Great Depression. The central bank has been behind a lot of the economic instability in the world. 1944, you have what's called Bretton Woods, okay? There's a group of people after World War II, Australia, United States, Japan, London, that came together that said, we can't have people just making money up out of the thin air. We need to have a global standard upon which we can trade and do commerce. So they said, gold is going to be the backed currency that we're all going to trade our different currencies on. Okay, fast forward to 1971, we have our next major war, Vietnam War. Richard Nixon says, we can't fund this war if we are on the gold standard because you can't just create gold out of thin air. So that's when the United States dollar depegged from gold, right? And the US dollar in 1973, our government struck a deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran and said, it's an active war if people around the world do not pay the United States in US dollars, AKA the petrodollar. That's how the United States dollar became the global currency of the world. Fun facts, okay? But ever since then, we've had global dominance in the financial system, in the financial markets that allowed us to import cheap goods from other places like China. Everything that I wear, you see, made in China, right? But it also has allowed us to export inflation onto the rest of the world because we control the currency, the dominant currency across the world. And who's impacted the most? When the money supply has expanded, it's a silent tax on society whereby the people who have the ability to create money are devaluing the time, energy, and effort of people who store their wealth in the currency. If you hold an asset, you've gotten a lot richer since COVID started. Not because your house is worth 100% more or because Broad Ripple is that much more great. The currency that you're holding, the asset is fixed and the monetary supply is being debased. But the people with the least assets are the people that are impacted the most. People that don't own things are impacted the most. The cost of goods go up, the rent goes up, but you don't have the ability to refi and take the equity out of your home when you don't purchase, when you don't own the asset. Does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with me? Why am I saying this? In Jerusalem, or Jerusalem around the time when Jesus was alive, America, like America, Rome was the global dominant power. They had the most effective military, the government, and most importantly, controlled the creation of money and monetary goods. They were the first society to really create coins around the world. There was mostly a barter and trade system. People would use gold, they would use rings, they would use jewelry, they would use other sorts of things. But the Romans were the first people to create coins, okay? They used copper, they used silver, they used gold, denarii, whatever those things were. But it allowed them to control what people had and what they owned. So they oppressed new conquered regions by charging high taxes and deflating the money supply of the coins that they issued. And the promise was for safety, modern cities, subsidies that ensure that everyone always has what they need and when they need. But the hidden costs that this agrarian agricultural group of Jews were not used to being subservient to people who controlled the money supply. They always thought about God. In fact, they lived by the Jubilee system. Every seven years, they would do a reset. They would have a major feast. They would reset all debts. They would cancel all the things. They would restart their ledgers to say, God, here's a new seven years. We are dependent and wholly dependent upon you. But society changed when Roman came under the rule. And so this created all this anxiety about money. This created the anxiety of, we don't know where our next meal is gonna come from because it used to be from you, God, but now they're saying it's from Caesar. And Jesus was acutely aware to this. He was attuned to this. So much so that 15% of all the things that Jesus talked about was money. The only place where you see Jesus quoted outside of the Gospels is in Acts 20, 35, where they were quoting something that Jesus said all the time. He said, is more blessed to than it is to Jesus talked a lot about money. The Bible talks about money 2,350 times, twice as much as faith and prayer combined. Why does God give so much instruction on the topic? 
Why did he say so much about how we are to view and relate to money? What did he know about money and possessions, Jesus, that he wanted to teach us that we didn't know? Let me pray really quick. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to come in here today. In the midst of global uncertainty and calamity, Lord, we pray that the anxiety and the fears of where our next food meal will come from, Lord, it says, do not worry yourselves about clothes or where your next meal will come from. For Lord, I clothe the lilies of the field, Lord, and I feed the crows, Lord. They don't create any economic value, Lord, but yet in your abundance and in your gracious economy, you still bless them, Lord. We pray that we would have the mindset to understand and know that all good things come from you and all good things are for you, Lord. We pray that today that we would loose the powers of mammon from our lives, from our hearts, from our minds, Lord. It says even when the seed was scattered, Lord, to the second person, it said that they were not even able to receive the seed because the anxiety of money allowed the word to be choked out, Lord. I pray that any fears and anxieties that people have today about money, Lord, would not choke out the word and the seed that will go forth today and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Observation number one. So I'm going to give you like the 10 things. This is like the TED Talk. If you want to like take notes. All right, there's the 10 observations or things that I've noticed in scripture about Jesus and God that they talk about money. Observation number one, if you're taking notes, we cannot serve God and money, okay? I say two things all the time to the church downtown. Either you're gonna get arthritis from flipping so much or you're gonna get paper cuts if you got a physical Bible because I'm all through this thing, all right? So stay with me, track. You might have to switch thumbs up at the end of the day. All the orthopedists are in here. Like, man, we need this guy to preach more often. <laughs> Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word there for money in the original text in Aramaic is mammon. And I think Brandon talked. Did Brandon preach on this? I'm pretty sure he did. Okay, but they said that money wasn't just a term, it wasn't a noun, it wasn't a verb, it was an embodiment of a physical spirit and being that they wanted to call out and and signify in a different way that was contrary to the flourishing of God and his universe and community. Mammon was not just a word, money was not just a word, it's a spirit, a physical embodiment against God. It has a will of its own. And God doesn't believe that we as humans can properly utilize money, the tool, without special instructions. Why can't we just serve God in the proper place and money in its proper place? Jesus said, give to Caesars what is Caesars and give to God what is God's. So clearly we can serve the government in proper proportion. Clearly we can serve other things in proper proportion, but not money. And why is that? Because money can do something that Caesar can't. Caesar's rule and reign is only valid in the jurisdiction of his kingdom. But we know with the U.S. dollar, the greenback talks everywhere. It's just as valuable in Bogota, Colombia, as it is the corner bodega in New York City, right? It's fungible, meaning that you can exchange it for nearly anything, anywhere, at any time. And who needs God when I can amass money and I can have what I want, when I want, where I want, at any point? Why do I need God? I've got money. You cannot serve God and money. Observation number one. Observation number two. Money corrupts. Money corrupts. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Delilah betrayed Samson for a few silver shekels. Achan's lust for money brought him to his death, and you all are in a series on Acts, right? There's, there's two Ananiases, by the way, Right? There's one that got struck down, right, for not being faithful and telling the truth of the, the proceeds, what they did with the proceeds when all of the people, Acts 2.42, were selling all of their goods in their possession so that no one had need among them, right? There's the other Ananias, there's the faithful Ananias, right? The one who actually, without knowing much or knowing anything, led to Paul or Saul becoming Paul. He was faithful. So anyways, two Ananias and Sapphira, they're like, yo, what you talking about? All right? Observation three, money cannot satisfy. I'm moving quick because Brandon's prayer went a little long. <laughs> I ain't going to lie. Y'all been here long enough to know that, like, you know, Brand, I'm, I'm good. Let me cut it down. <laughs> Love you, Brandon. Okay. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 15. You can turn there if you want. I'll give you some time. But money cannot satisfy. Solomon 
who's writing this is the wealthiest person of all time. There's arguably one guy that they say is richer. Um, I won't say his last name because it gets confused, but his name was Jacob. His last name was F-U-G-G-E-R. It sounds weird when you say it fast and you say it a lot, especially in a church sermon. Someone's playing in the back like, what are they saying up there? They say he was the richest man on earth. He actually had about 3% of the global GDP of all the wealth on the earth, they say. But anyway, Solomon probably had his number, okay? But Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 15, he says, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his or her income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet when he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep. I have, a grievous, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune. Right? I, if you're in crypto, that he's talking to you. Okay? Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. There's something unique about our devotion to money and our desires for it that when someone asks you how much is enough, you say another dollar. We have to guard our hearts against it. Solomon was a man that said he sought all of the pleasures on the earth. He sought all of the wisdom that he could get his hands on, and he was never satisfied. He never had enough money. God has enough they say he's the man with the cattle on a thousand hills. Right now, I'm, I'm envying God because his beef prices is high right now. Okay? Observation number four. Money is not the root of all evil like you've heard. You want to flip to 1 Timothy 6? That is a very prominent passage on money. Uh, that's a very prominent passage on generosity and how to be a good steward. If you want to go through that. There's a couple key pillar verses that I can leave you guys with, or you guys and gals with. Okay, but First Timothy says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself. Money is merely a tool. The love of money is the root of all evil. And we love it. Any parents in the house, which I know you are, hey, y'all are the real ones. Getting the kids up to the 9 o'clock service. We only got one service at some downtown. That's the 10 o'clock. Um, but I know that you all have seen Moana. Objectively, the best song in Moana is Shiny. Can we agree, Tamatoa? Thank you, yes! All right, look, I had a kid affirmation right here. It is the best song. And more than we like to think, we are a grumpy old crab in the bottom of the under realm who is protecting our gold in such a way that we will never see the surface or the light of day. We're more like the crab than we like to think. Anyone seen Raya the Last Dragon? The second gemstone that they go to, they find this old queen right, who actually trapped herself and ended up dying because she was trying to booby trap someone else from getting her money, and then she had that little weird hand thing. We love money more than we like to think. I'm not like the crab. I'm not like the queen and Ryan. You are. But money, again, isn't evil. It's the love of money. Let me get into some of Jesus' teachings because these are really important. Let's flip to Matthew 6, Okay. We were just there earlier, if you were there. I'm, I'm using your Bibles here, these red Bibles. So this would be page 860. Verse 19, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. Jesus is making a paradigm. This is observation number five. There's two kinds of treasure there's two kinds of places that you, there's two places where you can invest your money. Earthly treasure or heavenly treasure, okay? Let's go back to the crypto guys, but I'm a Bitcoiner, right? They said moth and rust. They didn't say a 
digitally uh, distributed uh, blockchain, right? Jesus is going to look at him like Nathaniel. When he said to Nathaniel, he said, hey, I saw you under that fig tree. And Nathaniel was like, blown away. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Jesus is going to look at you and say, yeah, I saw you when, you when you created that seed phrase, that treasure wallet that you have. But even Bitcoin is just man's invention of money in the digital age, but it too is subjected to God and his creation. One thing that Jesus is not saying, like what Brandon said right there in that talk, Jesus is not saying don't store up treasures. He's saying just make sure it's the right kind. He's not saying don't store up treasures, just make sure that it's the right kind. I don't know who said this quote, but you've never seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse because you can't take it with you. One of the biographies about John D. Rockefeller, someone's asking one of his accountants who managed his money after he died, they said, hey, how much money did, did John leave behind? I don't know if they were like on a treasure hunt or I don't know what they were doing. How much money did John leave behind? Accountant looks at him for a little bit, stares. All of it. That's what, that was the response. You can't take it with you. God's word says he gave us all things to richly enjoy. All things. God is the OG giver. There was original blessing and original giving before there was original sin in the Bible. God said when he created the plants and the fields and the beasts of the earth, he said, I gave you all of these things. I give you all of these things. Be fruitful in what? There was original blessing and original giving before original sin. God is not anti-treasure. God is not anti-storing things up. God is not anti-good things. He's trying to redirect our minds of where we invest those things. He didn't say store. He didn't say hoard because money won't last. When Jesus warns us against storing up earthly treasures, it's not that it might be lost. It's that it will always be lost. Either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die. There's no two ways around it. I went to William and Mary. I'm the dumbest guy there. I was for real. Second oldest university to Harvard to be debated when they really incorporated. 1693. But William and Mary, relative to the endowments of the oldest schools in the country, has a small endowment for like their giving. And the reason is they invested their treasury like 80% of it. Thanks, T.J., Thomas Jefferson. Confederate war bonds. That wasn't a good investment. Jesus tells us this is how the war of the kingdoms will end and that eventually earth treasures will be as worthless as Confederate war bonds. He's saying invest on the right side. Invest in the true north, heaven. If any of you have seen the movie Big Short, y'all are about the right age. Some of you are a little young. I can tell now. I'm not that old. I'm only 32, but I can tell when you're a little bit younger. <laughs> Christ is like the Michael Burry of his time, being irresponsibly short earth's treasures in light of an imminent collapse that no one believes him of, and is warning money managers to reallocate their wealth from a tranche of risky collapsing investments. Mammon is selling to us his triple-A-rated debt. As collater collateralized debt obligations in favor of a heavenly treasure which serves as a credit default swap backed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ insured by God himself. Mark chapter 10, he's even trying to teach us that the returns, the return risk profile of this investment is not only going to zero, the other side has exponential gains, 100x, 100 bagger. We like to hear that, you options guys out there. The rich young ruler comes to him and he's saying, hey, God, I've been doing great. I've been keeping all the commandments. I've been doing my thing, you know, do not steal, you know, do not murder, all these things. Jesus says, he goes, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, go and sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Okay. The point of that story, I know like anyone who's been on like a college missions trip, so that is like the story that they tell you right before you go. The important part of it was he said that he followed all the commandments, but the first commandment is 
Do not love any other idols above the Lord your God. He could not get through commandment number one, which is his love of money. But on the, on the side, after he talks to Jesus, he walks away, head down, little pout, pout. My son is four and a half. He's in pout, pout mode like 20% of the time. I'm like, stop pouting like, like you're, like you're going to have back problems because you hunched over so much. Okay? Jesus says, any one of you that have left mother, father, husband, wife, sold houses, possessions, and land will receive a hundred times of those things in heaven. Now, Jesus wasn't saying it as a get-rich-quick scheme, but he was talking about the investment return and profile of what is to be given to us in heaven. 100x, he walked away sad. He didn't even hear the, 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 he didn't even read the rest of the prospectus. Walked away sad. Which one do you want to invest in? Observation six, you can't have a truly transformed heart without dealing with money. Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is leading the way for Jesus and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And these people, curious about what they're about to get themselves into, are coming to John to say, what's gonna go down like when we have this transformed life? And like these are people that are just like genuinely curious you know when you talk to someone who's like always agitated, it's like, bro, I'm not even, this was John, right? The people are coming to him asking, hey, how do, what is this transformed life with Jesus after we get baptized going to be like? And he said, to the, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Okay, but whatever he says, okay, he says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do after he was just like angry? They're like, all right, look, okay, tell us what to do. He says, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more that you are authorized to do so. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone that threat, that by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So they're like, John, how do we have the transformed life? Tell me about the transformed life. He's like, money one, money two, money three. This isn't even Jesus. This is John coming before him. They were thinking about all of the other things, but he said, no, we got to solve some fundamental heart issues about your money and your possessions. You're not going to be able to fully walk into the baptism of Jesus, and living a truly transformed life. Jesus also says at the end of 619, or 6, uh, 621, Matthew 621, he says, for where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. What's the commandment that Jesus gave? He gave two commandments, right, in the New Testament. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your? Amen. What's the first thing he said? Your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can we fully live out the command of Jesus to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we don't deal with the money part? It's hard to decouple those things. Zacchaeus, Luke 19. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a shriner. This is the crowd. These are the Jews. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. He was, Jesus was walking through Jericho at the time. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. He didn't just say, Good job, like you're on the right track. Good job. Good job, Zacchaeus. He wasn't very tall. <laughs> Maybe he was like, you know, I don't know how tall he was. That was really small, okay? <laughs> but he said, today, salvation has come to this house. Jesus likened the heart change that he had of giving away his possessions, repaying people fourfold, giving away half of all that he had to the poor, to salvation. 
Observation number seven. We're all money managers. Hey, Dante, I'm not a finance guy. Yes, you are. I'm not good with numbers. Well, you better get better with numbers. <laughs> because in Jesus' teachings, we're all money managers. There's no, um, there's no preference that he gives to the rich person, to the poor person, to the servant, to the master, to someone who did that as their job or their profession, or the poor widow. Luke chapter 16, if y'all want to flip there. This is actually a really cool story. All these stories are cool stories. Some stories I just like resonate with me a little bit more than others. This is the story of the dishonest money manager. A couple mind-blowing paradigms come out of this. Start in verse 1. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who, was, who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is making, taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. Okay, so then he leaves. He's going to each one of these people. He's trying to get his next job. He's lining up his next job. He's trying to curry favor. So he goes to the one person who owes Jesus 100 barrels of oil or 100, it's not barrels. I meant this money manager. I'm calling him Jesus, but this is Jesus in the metaphor. 100 me measures of olive oil, I, I apologize. He said, take your invoice, sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? 100 measures of wheat? Take your invoice and write down 80. So he's like, I give you a 50 spot. I can stay in the carriage house behind your, your house. <laughs> I give you a 20 spot. You gonna let me sleep on the couch? Am I gonna get a guest bedroom? He's trying to curry favor so that when he gets his responsibilities taken away, he'll have a job. And at this point in the story, we can like read ahead. We, get, we, have like, we can look back and see the whole thing. But if you're listening to this story, you're like, if you have brothers or siblings, you know when they're like about to get trouble, you're like, oh, he about to get a beaten, you know, kind of deal. But listen to what Jesus says to him. He said, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I said, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, guaranteed currency collapse, earthly treasure, not if it fails, when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is yours to own? Okay? A couple key paradigms here. God is saying, if you've ever been in a place with a deflating or a hyperinflating currency, I apologize. What you do is you take out loans in that currency to go purchase assets in another place, sell those things back against the fixed loan because the price is going up. Let me give you an illustration. If your house costs $100,000, okay, and the value of that dollar when it was $100,000 went up by a factor of 10. So that if you went that next year, that house would then cost a million dollars. What you do is you take that currency, you go buy another currency that's more stable and fixed, and then you come back and pay off the $100,000 house because the currency went back up so much. Jesus is telling them, you have a collapsing currency. Use the deflating currency, use the hyperinflating currency to store and pay up for heavenly treasures. The other thing that he also says that is mind-blowing is he doesn't care about how much you have, how much you're investing. He said he is faithful with little. We'll also be faithful with much. It's not about how much you have. It's about how faithful you are with what you have been given. Lastly, he says, who will make you responsible of property that you own? New paradigm. There's never been something in this earth, we said you can't take it with you, that you will actually own. All the real estate people in the house, you pay off the house, what you still got to pay? Property tax, do you really own it? 
Don't be, y'all mad in here now. Hey, you don't really own it. Jesus said, use the earthly treasure and I will give you property that you own in heaven that will not be revoked, that will not be taken away. Paradigm shift, be a property owner, get the keys. Okay, last thing also. I see most of you all are the right age in this house. You ever see that movie Blank Check? Everyone's like, who's the Blank Check people in the house? The movie was great. Tone Loke, yeah, Preston Blake, he got hit by a guy driving a car. He got, the guy gave him a blank check because he was hurried. He was a criminal. He gave him the blank check. So he used his computer program, Macintosh. Back in the day, that was really scandalous. Macintoshes were not cool back then. But he had the Macintosh program. He wrote, he used the voice-activated thing on the Mac. He was able to cash out a million dollars out of this bank with a, bank with a blank check. He then goes and gets everything that he wants. It's an amazing movie. The house that he got was like a mansion, and it only cost $300,000 back in the movie. So that, that gives you some perspective. But one of the coolest things in this movie is he had this slide that came out of the, his bedroom right into the pool. That was like everything I wanted as a child. I like would tell my parents, like, yo, can we, can we make this out? Can we make this work? He also had a little track in the back, and he had the blow-up suits. Were there. I was like, that was one of my favorite movies. We are like Preston Blake. God is giving us an unlimited checkbook of his money. It's not ours. We have to determine with that money how we are to allocate that money. In the New Testament, God is not overly prescriptive of how much we're supposed to give. He's really checking against our hearts. And for each person, that will be different. That will fluctuate. But he's giving us a blank check, and we are his money managers to steward that blank check in ways that will be beneficial for ourselves and for his kingdom and kingdom to come. Luke 12, there's a rich man who, like any good capital allocator, is thinking about where's the best place for me to allocate this money to have a bigger return. He said, God, I don't have any place to store this wealth. I'm going to build a bigger barn. And Jesus, later in Luke 12, says to him, you fool, your life will be required of you tonight. For you are rich towards yourself and not rich towards God. You have a chance to be rich in this life. I don't know where you're at in this room. Like, I'll never be rich. You can be rich. Rich where? Rich how? Rich to whom? Rich in what sense? Rich today or eternally rich in heaven tomorrow? Where do you want to be rich? Observation eight. The tithe is the entry fee. Okay, so nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us how much to give or where to give. But the Old Testament gives us some examples. So in Genesis 14, 20, Abraham is going to meet with a king after he comes out of battle called Melchizedek. Melchizedek is actually called the righteous king. He's like the foreshadowing of Jesus. So he comes back from battle. He goes, come on, Abraham, let's go have dinner. Chops it up, gives him bread and wine. Okay, a little foreshadowing there. Okay, out of gratitude in his heart, Moses gave the tithe, which stands for tenth. Tenth of everything that he owned. That was a response of gratitude and of generosity back to Melchizedek who offered him this wonderful dinner. In Malachi, it describes the priests of the day as acting unjustly, distorting weights and measures. When you would go to pay for things, there would be a weighing machine. Have you ever seen those in someone's house? It's like this old antique that like, it's like doesn't do anything. They actually used to have to do commerce that way. No point of sale, no square, no mobile, okay? You would put things on this machine or, or on this, this scale in order to measure goods for goods. They would have these different conversion, conversion metrics. And what the priests of that time were doing was when people would go to buy things, they would make the side of what they owned lighter so that it wasn't worth as much. And Jesus says in Malachi 3.10, or, or the priest says, and Malachi says to the people, when he's talking about their hearts and their giving, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. The only place where God says put him to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing that there is, until there is no more need. The only place where God says test him. And he says a tenth in that passage as well. 
But let's go back for actual more context because we think 10 is where we stop. Okay. In the Old Testament, the Israelites would typically do three tithes. One for the priest, one for the feast, and one for the least. The orphans, the widows, and the uh, abandoned children. Okay. And the poor. It amounted to roughly 23% of their wealth. And then they didn't just give any 23% or any 10%. They gave the first fruits. They actually had two harvests. They would harvest the first 10%, take it to the church, take it to the temple. Then they would go back for the rest of the harvest. It wasn't just any 10%. It was the first 10%. Because it says, God, we are wholly dependent on you for everything we have, everything we need, everything we desire. It wasn't just any 10%. If you want to use a benchmark, but it was about 23% of their wealth that they gave in those times. Okay, observation nine. I'm about to wrap up here. We give in response to the value we've placed on the grace and gift that we've been given. We give in response to the value we place on the grace and the gift that we have been given. Mark chapter 12. Jesus is telling the story about the poor widow. I read this text. It's like, I don't know what y'all, what y'all doing in here. Okay. I'll just tell you the story. So Jesus is going to the temple. He's sitting outside of the temple and it says he sat next to the treasury where the people were exchanging money. It didn't say that he happened to see. It didn't say that he just saw in a passing by. And it said all the rich people were giving this money, but and he called his disciples over. He said, guys, guys, come, come here. I want you to see something. And so this must have been weird. Like all of these people, like, I guess they must have been like huddled around the offering basket or they must have had like really good vision. Y'all ain't never seen nobody make change out the offering plate. You put the 20 in and they, anyways, let me stop. That would have been weird. So they're all huddled around and Jesus says, look at this two, two woman, this woman who gave two copper pennies. I tell you that she gave more than any of the men that went before her. She gave everything that she had. Giving is not just a luxury of the rich, but it's also a privilege of the poor. Giving is not just a luxury of the rich, but it is a privilege for the poor. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. The man in Matthew 13 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. He gave up all that he had. He was giving in response to the value of the gift and the grace that he had received. You can flip that. Who is the giver? Who is the man that sells everything? It could be you or I in response to the grace and the gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. It's also a picture of Jesus and that he left everything, Philippians 2, that he did not consider equality with himself as something to be grasped, but lowered himself, humbled himself, taking the form of the man, Dying on a cross, and not just death on the cross, but crucifixion. Jesus gave everything he had so that you could be his treasure. The response of our generosity is in direct correlation with the value that we believe of the gift and the grace that we have received. Two verses that I'll finish with. The most prominent passages on giving in the entire Bible. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 1. I want to give us, leave us with this. This is such a powerful passage about the Macedonians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Excuse me. During a severe trial brought by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. 
Then he says, verse 7, Now as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace, this grace of giving. But in the beginning it says the grace came from God. God emptied himself in such a way. They were so captured by the story of Jesus that they had heard, you know, just 10 years after he was crucified, that even in severe affliction, even in extreme poverty, they gave and begged to give in the sharing and expansion of the ministry. They begged. Are we begging to give? Are we placing the proper value on the grace in the gift that we've received? And you read in Romans about spiritual gifts. Giving is also a spiritual gift. Don't neglect it. It's in there. Don't slide by it. It says you excel in this act of grace also, in this act of giving. Let's excel and be beggars to give to other people. Last one, radical, generation, uh, radical generosity is contagious. Who gives more lives more, okay? I don't know why I'm doing this. I do my hands like I do the claps. You know, I'm like the claps text guy, like word, clap, word, clap, sorry. Promise you. All right. First Thessalonians 4. This is really powerful. Giving is contagious. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in where? Macedonia. The Thessalonian church was the source, was the example that spurred on the Macedonians to give in such a way to the church in Corinthians that Paul wrote about later. Their radical generosity inspired more generosity. But their generosity was spurred on by a generous act of magicians in Acts 19.19, who it says when they discovered this message of Jesus Christ sold all of their books, which amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver or $6 million worth of books. And those people were encouraged by Lydia, a woman who had heard the message of Paul coming to Philippi, said, come and worship in my house. And Lydia was inspired by supporters like Priscilla and Aquila, who moved their business across the Middle East and the Mediterranean to support Paul and his ministry. And they were inspired by the early church in Acts. Acts 2.42 said they sold all of their things, had all things in common, so that no one had a need among them. Thousands were added to the church. Your generosity, when you live out radical generosity, the blessing, the flow of blessing can stop with you or it can flow through you to impact people beyond you that you'll have no idea. One day you're going to end up in heaven. One day you're going to end up somewhere in this city and you're going to tie a piece back to the story just like the one that we shared, that I just shared. You're not even going to know how your simple act of generosity is going to impact a whole church of people so that someone's going to write about your story thousands of years later. Let's have that kind of radical generosity. Another amazing story, Exodus 36. They're working on building up the temple. And it says, Moses called Bezalel and Oholab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord put skill. Not mine. I call a plumber or somebody else. Praise be to God. And everyone whose heart stirred him up come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command. And word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. 
Moses had to take the giving link off the website. Are we going to be a people in a church that gives so much and so radically that Brandon's going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're doing too much. Stop giving. We've got more than we need. We've got overflow. We've got abundance. But that is what God wants to do. That is an example of God wants to give because God gives exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. Where are we going to invest? We can be rich in this life, but rich towards what? To what ends, to what means? Money is not a means to an end. It's a means to an eternal future that will extend far beyond us if we invest it correctly and in the right place. In times of struggle, in times of affliction, is when the gospel spreads most radically typically throughout the history of the church. I do believe, I don't stand here in the pulpit as a fear monger, I do believe that globally we are going to come up on some hard times and we have a response as a church. Are we going to be the leaders in radical generosity? Are we going to give in such ways that people are going to say, wow, gas prices are up 30% or 40%. Wow, people can't afford homes, but somehow everyone on the street of those Christians that go to Soma are fed. Somehow the rent is paid for every person that lives on the street. Somehow they do these cookouts and they still connect with each other. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And they still love one another. And they still give radically. And there's no needs among them. That's when the seeds and the fruit of the gospel will spread and expand. And I pray that on your church. I pray that on our church. I pray that on our hearts. I pray that on my own life. That as I look at my, my balance and my retirement portfolio, my IRA, my 401k, when I look at my grocery bill, we still, we shop at Aldi. Aldi, Aldi not shielding you, all right? They got the lowest prices, but them prices are still going up. When I look at that every month, we've exceeded our budget. We've exceeded our budget. God, but are we going to continue to radically press into generosity? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that we have the opportunity to give to a kingdom, to give to your kingdom that it says The gates of hell and earth will not defeat it, Lord. We we know we are giving to an eternal kingdom, an eternal God, Lord, who wants to bless us beyond all measure. Lord, it says in Revelation 21 that you will be our light, that we will be in the city of gold, Lord, with river flowing from the throne, Lord, the river of life, Lord. I pray that we would sit at your throne. I pray that we would sit with that reminder in our minds that we would give radically and generously when we have the temptation to hold, to hoard, to be rich towards ourselves, to store up treasures, earthly treasures for ourselves, Lord, that you said will fade, where moth and rust will, will destroy and the thief will steal. God, give us eternal treasure. Give us the joy of the Macedonian church. Give us the joy of the man who sold everything that he had to obtain the grace and the gift that you have freely given by dying on the cross. May we be generous towards that end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.